Bonjour, bienvenue, and welcome to Feminist Fridays, your weekly dose of self-empowerment and equality. I'm your host, Sarah Liberty, coming to you de Paris, and this week we have a guest who I am très excité to speak to, Dr. Lauren Rosewarn, who is a senior lecturer in the School of Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne, aka a political nerd like me. Lauren's bio is epic. She has authored 11 books as well as journal articles, book chapters and hundreds of opinion pieces and popular culture columns whilst being a regular contributor to a range of radio and TV programs. But before we meet Lauren, I'm going to kick off with a track, which is a remix of the 1992 hit What's Going On by Four Non Blondes, featured in the Netflix series Sense8, which is totally binge-worthy, P.S., for those of us who are actually still stuck in confinement mode. And I think it's pretty apt, considering... Many of us are actually wondering what the actual freak is going on right now in the world. So get ready to get your rave on and enjoy this tune because it's Friday after all. 25 years of my life is still trying to get up that great big hill of hope for a destination. Thank 
Okay, hi Lauren. Welcome to Feminist Fridays. Thank um, you for having me. Before we join and, and talk more about your role in, in political sciences and academia, I'd love to know a bit about your background and how you got into this field. Was it always an ambition of yours? Or was there a moment when you realised that being an expert in political sciences, in addition to pop culture and technology, was your calling? I'm not sure I've ever met an academic who dreamed of becoming an academic as a child. It seems like a bit of an obscure uh, profession for kids to be thinking about. But I certainly grew up wanting to write and being very interested in research. And I think that's pretty much the journey for me is that through my undergraduate studies, I ended up getting a scholarship to write my PhD and never really left university. I did work in politics a little bit when I'd finished high school, but uh, I'm one of those people who've been inside university since I was 18 years old, or since I was 17 years old, actually, and never really left. Ah, interesting. So let's get on to an essay you wrote in 2019, because I know you've written a lot, and I wanted to, um, I guess, hone in on to a couple of topics. So in this essay, you talk about Trump's intimate knowledge of the entertainment media and how despite having no experience in public service government or successful management, he makes up with his intimate knowledge of pop, pop, pop culture and being an entertainer who knows how to seal the deal. And as much as I personally dislike him, and that's putting it politely, I would have to agree with you. President Obama, however, also was adept at participating in popular culture, such as TV show appearances, his affection for dancing and singing, his alignment with personalities like Beyonce and Leonardo DiCaprio, and even participating in the mock House of Cards segment and on Between Two Ferns. How and why do you think President Trump is different to President Obama. I mean, you could argue that every president since Kennedy has had to become adept at using the media and particularly television. And I mean, you know, you mentioned Obama, but Bill Clinton was also excellent in doing the sort of late night talk show circuit. So we've had a number of presidents who've um, not only, I mean, all politicians largely trade on charisma, but, um, you know, used used popular culture to to great effect. So that I think, yes, Obama and, uh, and Trump have a similar in that respect. The thing that I think is quite different about the two of them, though, is this is the main event for Trump. In one of the uh, autobiographies of someone who'd worked in the White House, they mentioned an early meeting, an early strategy meeting that Trump had had with his staff, saying he wanted to treat each day in the White House like it was its own episode, right, in the sense that it was, you know, battling the enemies and the, the whole thing about structuring a day in the White House as an episode, I think is a perfect way to think about how he's been presidenting. And that's the difference. Obama used it as a communication strategy, but it wasn't his presidency. For Trump, 
the media is the presidency. The sizzle is the presidency. There's actually nothing underneath except that sort of um, media manipulation. And I think a very big difference, and this is something I've been thinking about over the past couple of weeks in in the context of his daily supposed briefings around the pandemic, is he has this miraculous ability to throw grenades that get the media thoroughly distracted. You know, a few days ago it was drinking bleach or whatever it was, that we're all suddenly now running after that toy, you know, and we're all looking at that thing and he's doing something else and then tomorrow it'll just be a new roll of the dice. And this idea of sort of a cliffhanger every day, there's nothing even slightly similar in Obama's presidency or any previous American president. So as we near the next presidential election, I'm curious to know, do you think that the United States now expects their leader to be someone who has this intimate knowledge of stagecraft and, you know, to to the degree which Trump emphasises? And at this point, do you think that there's any candidate that could challenge Trump in this regard and successfully overthrow him to use this to their advantage. So in the early 2000s, there was a, a trend in uh, political science scholarship about spin and and how uh, media manipulation had become such a thing in the 2000s, you know, at this, at sort of that nexus between the rise of the internet as well as, you know, a few years into 24-hour news, et cetera. And there was a lot of studies that was focusing on this and sort of how uh, politicians need to be not only media savvy but actually sort of very, very well Crafted for us to be accepting of them, you know, that we expected them to be media performers. I think if we flash forward 20 years, though, we're actually tired of that. Not only are we tired of that, I think we're starting to see through it. It looks a little bit slick now. And I think this is one of those things that because television and film have spoofed it so often, that kind of, you know, um, manufactured politician thing, we've we've tired of it. And I think even uh, social media is, is a probably interesting insight into this where there seems to be this desperate hunger for authenticity and particularly mm. around, you know, influences, etc. Now, I don't actually think we know what we mean when we say we want someone who's authentic and I think even authenticity can be manipulated but I think we think at the moment we want someone who seems to be real to us and unfortunately this is part of the charm of Donald Trump is that to his base not to all of us but to his base he does feel authentic when you hear his supporters interviewed they often talk about him saying it like it is even Mm. if it's offensive And I think this is one of those things that Joe Biden has potentially working in his favour. He does seem real. He has an interesting personal story. The problem with Joe Biden's real, though, is his gaffe filled. Now, Donald Trump's life is a giant gaffe, if you like, in the sense that everything that comes out of his mouth is a loose cannon and that you can't really sort of pull one thing um, out of context or, or even just pull one thing as quotable as though that's a scandal. Whereas with Biden, he has this 
horrible ability to really make silly and buffoonish statements that make him look as though he's not not only not speaking in the 2020 dialogue but that he's somewhat anachronistic the question will be and as a political scientist i'd like to think i know something about politics but 2016 taught us that we know nothing is that i don't know whether this will play as authentic in america now or whether he will come across as uh, insufficiently savvy for the 2020 landscape Mm, very interesting yeah and i think you know people's um questioning into whether what you know what comes out of someone's tweet storm or twitter or social media is authentic is certainly a really important point and twiplomacy that that phrase has also been around for quite a while and has been used by other presidents previous to trump so yeah it will be interesting to see which candidate is considered authentic but also savvy at the same point so yeah, it's it's a fine line to tread because yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's also not universally accepted. For example, I don't see Donald Trump as particularly authentic because to me that word seems to identify that there's some sort of true self or core, and I actually don't think he's in possession of that. You know, in any meaningful ideological sense. Whereas I think that you know we use that word authentic simply because it it feels good and accessible to us and I think Mm. that's as far as we can go which is why you know there are very few individuals that are universally seen as authentic often people and particularly celebrities divide us there'll be people who'll see people certain figures as real and others who see them as fake and this is just the nature you know the subjective nature of, of of media performance as someone who has studied foreign affairs Diplomacy and the Grand Strategy of the United States at uh, Sciences Po. I've heard the majority of my lecturers state that A, Trump's approach to, to, to diplomacy is confusing and that B, there are real questions relating to whether he has any grand strategy. What are your thoughts on this? Look, the really difficult thing about Trump is that it's impossible to determine, is this a chaotic everyday, we just throw the cards in the air and then let's see how they fall strategy, or whether there's actually method in that madness. And I actually don't know that there's an answer to this. I think that, you know, you've got some theorists who look at this and say, oh, no, 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 there's definitely a method, you know, he's, he's playing the mad king role, but that that's a strategy. I actually don't, my hunch is he's not disciplined enough to do that. My hunch is that his attention span is actually not good enough to do any kind of grand uh, planning in regards to anything to do with the, with the presidency. So my guess would be no, that it is actually just a chaos, a system of, of, of entire chaos. And a In terms of chaos, I think part of this has got to do with the fact that he, A, didn't expect to win, so didn't come in in terms of that. Uh, He didn't campaign in an ideological way. You know, he he spoke a few platitudes in terms of, you know, tugging at the heartstrings in a nostalgic way, you know, returning to a a past America that was, you know, rose-tinted and, you know, somewhere in the 1950s. But in terms of what political scientists would see as ideology, 
I don't think I can see anything there. I think, you know, outside of perhaps, you know, um, passion for capitalism, I think that's as, as, as close as you can get to anything that's a kind of uh, belief system. I, I really, I think in terms of diplomacy, there's not really any consistency. There seems vaguely to be some, you know, to be a, um, a kinship, if you like, with dictators. But is that a strategy or is that something of kind of uh, envying of the power that they have and I think this is that hard thing with Trump it's always this massive clash between coming at this from a political science analysis but then also playing armchair psychologist because there seems to be a lot of personality there that's quite separate from a leadership style but more so in terms of um, emotion you know the kind of actually the kind of stereotypes we've historically had of, of women politicians he's that he you know this 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 perception that female leaders which actually Actually rarely pans out that are driven by emotions that's actually him mm, absolutely I think you're very on the nail eating the nail on the head on that one so one of my favorite pop culture icons is RuPaul and when he and Oprah had a Super Soul Sunday interview and when Oprah asked RuPaul about Trump uh, who is not you know, openly supportive of the LGBTQ community, his response was that the pendulum always swings, i.e. change will happen inevitably. Do you agree with this, I mean, in relation to US politics? So I've always, as a political scientist, will always talk to students about this idea of the pendulum. And I think particularly if you're a progressive, um, it's a nice reminder that victories, as much as you feel like you're moving forward, you can always move back and you can always have those victories taken away from you. Reproductive mm. rights in the United States is a perfect illustration of this. Mm. So I think, yes, at the moment we're thinking, absolutely, we're looking forward to the pendulum swinging because it will serve as a corrective to Trump. We just need to be mindful that this can work, you know, both ways in, and, and particularly for groups that have been historically marginalised, these kind of things that, you you know, you, you, you get used to certain kinds of rights and they can be taken off you. My problem with, so yes, in a, in a succinct way, I would say, or if I was, it was, Asked to answer this in a few few words, I'd say yes. There'll have to be a pendulum swinging in the sense that um, that's the nature of politics. People get bored. And people also want change and there's always this, you know, I shouldn't say always, but often this sense that once we've had one style of government for a while, the people demand something else. I imagine, for example, in the United States, particularly after coming out of a pandemic where as of today 63,000 people are dead, that you're mm-hmm. going to want a presidency that seems kinder and more compassionate, I'd like to think. But as I said, 2016 taught a lot of political scientists that we don't know anything. My problem, though, in speculating on this swing is can you have enough of a swing to serve as a corrective of the damage that Trump has done? And that's Mm. my fear is that, you know, having lived in the US for quite a bit, something that is noticeable to me is that now people who whose voices um, because of racism, homophobia, etc., had been marginalised. Those views had been for, for so long seen as unacceptable and outlier and now in the mainstream. What happens to those voices in the sense that can we have a pendulum swinging to the left that fixes that? 
because I'm not sure. So that's partly I think we can get rid of Trump, but we don't get rid of the damage he's done. And I think that damage is more than just a swing of the pendulum. The next thing I'm curious to ask you about are your thoughts on the women who Trump employs and associates within his inner circle. Compared to Michelle Obama, Melania Trump is often a silent bystander. And although she admittedly often employs her modelling background and knowledge of the power of image, and she certainly knows how to walk off a plane and have her photo taken, Ivana Trump, as Trump's daughter, really, if at all, seems to step out of line with his approach either. So I, I guess as a feminist, I personally just don't understand how any woman could support Trump given his sexist and misogynistic displays, which have been very well documented. Why do you think there are these women who are willing to continue to, to support him? Well, one's married to him and one's his daughter. So I think mm. in, 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 in that answers that in terms of um, Melania obviously loved him. We have to make assumptions here that they married for love, that she loved him enough to marry him. And most people love their fathers. There are exceptions, but most of us love our dads. So I think there's no mystery here in terms of their continued support. What I find interesting about both women is the cultural chatter around them. I mean, you'd be familiar with um, the sort of free Melania campaign and you'll see sort of mm. uh, memes that are kind of referencing that she's some sort of hostage in, you know, and then there's that on one end of the scale versus the others of she's some sort of manipulative gold digger. Now, either way, it's a very sexist interpretation. It's either sexist in terms of being paternal for to a woman who's 50 years old or it's sexist in the sense of assuming that because she's um, a migrant that somehow she you know and that she's a model and and so significantly younger than him that she's somehow manipulating the situation we don't know anything about her motives and I think we just have to take it on the surface and assume she loves him their marriage might not you know be conventional but yet I find it difficult to cast aspersions on any relationship I've ever witnessed let alone theirs. I think also with if you look at Ivanka, the cultural chatter at the start of her um, t- term, I guess we have to call it, or appointment to, in the White House, kind of focused on her and Jared being the sort of East Coast liberals in the White House that were going to balance out uh, Trump's, you know, um, more authoritarian tendencies. That has absolutely not paid out. played out. She was offered to us as a kind of balm to get us through this horror show. In fact, there is almost no examples where she's done anything out of step with her father. And I'm, I'm not sure that that should be surprising. She is his daughter. She's also his heir. And I imagine that, you know, for all of the things we might not like about her, she quite probably has her eyes on, on, a, on a bigger prize. Mm. I do stand corrected, actually. I, I referred to her as Ivana, which was Trump's earlier wife it is Ivanka that's Trump's daughter but what about other women beyond Trump's inner circle 
And I think that was one of the most egregious things that came out of the 2016 election for me was the huge number of white women that voted for him. Mm. And, you know, uh, that for me was uh, just just a shock. I, I, uh, it was, a, it was an, a, a real, real wake-up call for me. And one way that I understand this, and again, you know, whether this is the full story or only a tiny part, and I suspect it's the latter, it's that we never get a full pers- um picture as to as to the how and whys of, of people's voting patterns but I think that Trump campaigned on a culture wars agenda even though he kind of accused Hillary Clinton of doing the same he was very much speaking to these supposed forgotten Americans who were having their culture taken away from them you know that globalization that all of these different factors had changed their way of life and I suspect for a a chunk of a chunk of those white women who voted for him that they saw their whiteness as more important than their gender and that their whiteness was actually something that they felt under threat. So being a woman didn't feel like it was being threatened by Trump because they're not looking at him as someone who would hurt them personally. And so there was a demoting of any kind of notions of sisterhood and an advancing of what it means to be a white, rural, working class woman in in um, the non-coastal America, so middle America. I also think it's important to, we have to make, you know, make the point that you know, a good majority of, or I don't want to say majority, but, you know, a good number of women in America wouldn't identify themselves as feminists. So I think we're also putting a, a an assumption there that these women who voted for him ever had any feminist inclinations. And I think while they might have some in terms of, you know, individual, you know, freedoms, et cetera, et cetera, in, in certain respects might look a little bit like they have some feminist values, they're more likely to be church going and they're more likely to have a set of values that are in conflict um, with the Democrat Party and therefore more aligned to the Republicans. Yeah, no, and I would agree with you. I, I certainly don't make assumptions that the majority of women in America are feminists in, in you know, any any regard. And I also agree with you. I think that, you know, I think Trump's appeal to people feeling threatened, both, you know, in, in an emotional and a cultural sense, but also in an economic sense, you know, was one of the cards that he used to win. And we'll see if he continues to use it. So CNN does a frequent fact check and publishes all of the inaccurate things President Trump says. For example, recently in relation to his activity during COVID-19, Trump said, I work from early in the morning until late at night, haven't left the White House in many months except to launch hospital ship comfort in order to take care of trade deals and military rebuilding. However, CNN reported that he left multiple times in just the last month. That's just one example. There are hundreds every day. Why, given Trump's tweet storms and penchant for lying, do you think people are still prepared to defend him and, in my mind, horrifyingly vote for him? Well, they voted someone in who was already known to be a liar. 
Mm. So the people who find his lies egregious, you know, the 18 or 19,000 of them that the Washington Post has documented, I'm the one who gets upset about it. (laughs) You're the one who gets upset about it. We never would have voted for him in the first place. So Mm. you've also got that starting point in the sense that we were, uh, you know, horrified that a liar got elected. We're continued, you know, our horror continues, but we're not surprised. For his supporters, though, I actually don't think they're generally the people who are paying the kind of attention you and I are to the media. I think we're Mm -hmm. the ones who are watching CNN. His supporters are not watching CNN. So if you look at the media that that is consumed by Trump supporters, they're watching Fox News that is not reporting on his deceit in any kind of meaningful way. So first Mm -hmm. there's a question of not only, you know, are they ignoring his lies, do they even know about his lies is, is a question I would ask. But the next parts are simply I actually don't think even if they were shown all of the data, they'd care one way or the other because yeah. I think they'd be able to rationalise in their own almost ideological or almost cult-like way that his lies are still in their interest. So mm. I think that that kind of rationalisation that they're doing is partly because their man is in the White House and they're winning. And that perception of, of winning is almost like the sort of dirty tricks on the football field that, that supporters excuse because it's advancing an agenda that they feel is in their own best interests. Mm, very interesting. Yeah, I agree with you that, uh, you know, I think his photos – prioritise the fact that they perceive that they're winning, even though I would argue that the US is, you know, is not winning at the moment, particularly in COVID. But, yes, they're, you know, either unaware of his lies or just prepared to rationalise them. So our, our current Prime Minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, has been seen to enjoying somewhat of what some of the media have called a bromance with President Trump. Although I would question the mastery of his stagecraft, in my mind, he desperately needs to employ uh, a stylist, beautician, hair care team and is in need of a Fab Five makeover. He does seem to use the baseball cap approach that Trump uses on occasion to seem to like, you know, to be a man of the people. What do you make of the relationship between these two leaders? Look, I think it's difficult. Any Australian Prime Minister is in a precarious position in regards to the relationship of Australia to the United States. Mm. And this is partly because we are an isolated island who is reliant on a network of countries around us to sustain our way of life. You know, Mm. um, our prosperity is hinged intimately. You know, it's part of the reason we're so very ready to overlook human rights abuses in China, for example, because of our trade relations. So I think, yes, you know, it, it's cringeworthy. Uh, Scott Morrison's relationship with Donald Trump, even though I imagine that it's more one way, you know, I don't think Donald Trump would recognise Scott Morrison in a lineup. Nonetheless, I think that there is a uh, an expected and it's, it's unsurprising allegiance 
any Australian Prime Minister has with the United States because of this perception of, of us being in a precarious position that we may need the US one day. I think at the, under this presidency it's actually a little foolish because we probably won't get much from this United States in any meaningful way if we were to be in any position of peril. But nonetheless, I, I understand that if you look at the uh, scheme of or the, or the history of Australian-US relations, it's largely a positive relationship because of our tiny nation position. Yeah, and I mean, the US does have military bases in Australia. But, but one, you know, we have actually gone through a really um, troubling time recently with the bushfires. And, you know, I noted that the countries that came to our support were Canada and New Zealand, not the United States. So I think that kind of, you know, manoeuvre is evident of the, I guess, the, the lack of priority or recognition that the United States or Trump affords to Australia. Would you agree? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think that that this president sees us as insignificant, truth be told. But I actually think that's not surprising. I think most US presidents would have thought the same. You know, we're a small population, not a major trading partner in any meaningful way. I think the difference is, though, you've got that fact added to this almost isolationist model the US is trying to mm. adopt at the moment, not in any kind of political strategy, but more so tight arsery in the sense of wanting to not be uh, generous or even particularly uh, helpful in regards to, for example, shared intelligence. The US is wanting to, in a lot of ways, play it on their own. You know, the, the, the whole Trump approach, for example, to NATO or to the World Health Organization shows that it's actually wanting to be quite insular in a lot of respects, which again just further uh, puts Australia on the outer. So I think there is something a little distasteful about Scott Morrison's almost grovelling to Trump, given that this is one occasion where we're not actually going to get much out of this relationship under the Trump presidency. So Australia, in the eyes of many experts, which you've alluded to already, is considered a, a, a hedging nation. Morrison closely aligns himself with Trump, but also employs a relatively polite or di diplomatically agreeable relationship with China. Um, and, of course, we are still part of the Commonwealth. Would you agree with this assessment of Australia as a hedging nation? And in your opinion of Morrison's diplomatic approach and grand strategy, do you think he has one? Uh, so in terms of hedging, yes, Australia is because of those factors such as our sort of geographic isolation, being an island, um, being a country that's, you know, closest neighbours are perceived as sort of, you know, we don't see ourselves generally as a country in Asia, even though Asia is our closest neighbour. So we've got this strange situation where we would, you know, in a lot of respects, our governments would certainly see ourselves as more akin to the British or more akin to uh, the Americans. And yet geographically, we're so far away from them. So there's a perception that we need to keep our allies uh, close to us, even though, you know, they're geographically far away. Our small mm. population, our, you know, relative relatively small economy. I mean, it's a 
you know, it's a significant economy, but we're not, you know, the, the major player of the US stakes means that we need to be careful about our, um, our relationships with our neighbours. And it's part of the reason that we're, um, that we kind of, as you use the word hedge and sort of hedging our bets in terms of not having too many um, uh, political rifts with these partners, even when I think on a lot of occasions we probably should. Now, mm. whether or not Scott Morrison has a grand strategy, I think this is a tricky question. Um, look, I think he's more ideologically driven than Trump, you know, in the sense that just as one example, uh, Trump sees and sells himself as a Christian. I think most people would say he's probably not. Scott Morrison, on the other hand, his Christianity is a driving force in his life. And that, I think, is just one of many factors that mean he means he has an ideological compass, um, mm. more so than Trump. And equally, I think that the Australian political system in general is different. You know, I mean, obviously it's different, but Trump gets to be a lone operator where he can operate without ideology. Scott Morrison doesn't have that luxury in Australia. His position's there not because voters, you know, particularly selected him. <laughs> he represents the values of a party and that's mm. not quite the same as, as the United States system. Even though I think Australians do feel they voted for Scott Morrison, most of us, unless you live in his seat, don't. No. And I think that's, a, that's, that's a, a, a big difference in our political systems. Australia particularly is deeply concerning to me from a human rights perspective and I won't go into that. But in the past 20 years, we've fallen from 15th in the world to 50th in terms of female parliamentary representation. What are your thoughts on this uh, and why it's happened and how can it be turned around? Uh, you know, how do you think we can remain hopeful and, in, and engaged rather than becoming apathetic and thinking that nothing will change? Uh, there's so many <laughs> threads to that question. Um, okay, firstly, I think that Australia has had a conservative federal government for a really long time now, and the Conservative Party or the Liberal Party in Australia um, has not been supportive of female candidates in the way that more progressive parties are. And this is something I've written about before, you know, it's a party that has a, you know, a, a reputation for allowing a whole lot of systemic, you know, bullying within the party and lack mm. of support for, for women candidates. So there's institutional problems that the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party for people who are not in Australia, um, that, that, they're, that are inherent in that party. Also, the word conservative is the tip off there. <laughs> the cons by very the very nature of their ideology, their ideology, don't prioritise feminist issues. It's not, you know, it's not on their dance card. They're not particularly interested in furthering the status of women. I'd argue that a lot of them don't think that there's a problem at all. So you've got institutional problems within the party that's held power in Australia for a really long time. I think that's that's a, a big factor to this. I think mm. the other one, though, ties into some of the things you mentioned in terms of, of apathy as well as um, a, a widespread belief that uh, politicians aren't actually the drivers of change in a country. And I think that this is, you know, whether this is actually apathy or or you could see it as a reverse in terms of a, 
um, a more astute or, or political savviness. But I think for lots of young people, they don't actually see politicians as the answer to things. So I think that even though, um, you know, yes, you, it'd be great to see more more uh, women politicians, I think there is an acceptance that that's not the your only path to make change. No. And that you can actually make change from outside of the political institutions. And the third part of your question in terms of what needs to be done to change, firstly, we need to recognise there's a problem, which I think mm. that there actually is not universal agreement that there is a problem in terms of representation of women in politics or, for that matter, on corporate boards. Then if you agree that there is a problem, I think there is, then you have to pass quota laws. And I've been a strong believer of those um, in Ooh, those. Yes. I th- <laughs> I think that's the only way, you know, I think this this assumption that things will naturally change is just completely disputed in any piece of research that says people hire, promote, advance people like themselves, which means women will always be naturally marginalised in a male-dominated institution like politics. You have to pass quota laws until things change and then once they've changed and once we've had change for a while and things are stable, then you can put, you know, those quotas don't necessarily have to stay, but you need them to make the initial change that won't come naturally. Yes, Lauren. Yes, (laughs) I, I completely agree with you. We need quota laws. So I, before we wrap up, I wanted to just talk to you about another topic, which I know you have written a lot about, which is sex, including books on masturbation and why women put things into their vaginas. (laughs) As someone who owns a vibrator, and especially during confinement, is not afraid to use it, I wonder why these topics are often still, uh, you know, in mainstream culture, quite taboo. Very few men, a few women I know in France, which surprised me, admit to owning a vibrator. Why do you think that masturbation is something that people are still relatively cautious of talking about? Why aren't we all proud of our, you know, our battery-operated devices? Look, there's lots and lots of, of explanations, but the two big ones, I think, firstly, things to do with our genitals are still going to be for a lot of people taboo and personal. Mm-hmm. So I think much like I wrote a book about menstruation, and this is one of the questions I'm often asked, why aren't we more out and proud of our periods? And I think it's because things that are going on between our legs for a lot of people are something that is a private matter that the world doesn't need to know about. And I think that's going to be whether natural is the right word, but inevitable. There'll be some of us who are okay with talking about it and there'll be others who don't want to. And I think that's pretty much going to be the case forever. Now, the other aspect to it, though, I think has to do with the fact that there is a perception that masturbating is a personal failure, that if you had a partner, if you were considered desirable enough and someone wanted you enough, they'd be handling your orgasms and you using a vibrator yourself and I think that there is an element there of that would this be your first choice 
if you could have the sex life you wanted. And I think this goes for men and women, but I think the burden is a little bit more on women because women's value in our society is so connected to the extent to which they are loved in an intimate sense, you know, and, and mm. seemed worthy or fuckable. I think in that sense there is a uh, a, a, a perception or a feeling that uh, admitting to, to masturbation has the connotation that you are alone and that alone means unlovable. That's really sad. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I, I'm some I'm someone who's single and, you know, I quite enjoy my single life at the moment. I also enjoy uh, sex. I won't admit to how often I have it, but, you know, I, I'm in France and it's, you know, uh, sex here is one of the national sports. So, you know, I think it's, I'm personally, I really, you know, disagree when people say or that, you know, that idea that if you're masturbating or own a vibrator, then, you know, you're, as you said, unfuckable. Um, oh, it's horrible and it's anachronistic and it's also this awful view of female sexuality is that it's supposedly only unleashed when you're in the presence of a man. You know, it's 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 not a helpful way of thinking. Don't think in any respect that was an endorsement. But I think no. culturally these are the perceptions that a lot of people carry around things like sexuality because we don't have a culture that is particularly comfortable with addressing things like desire. I mean if you look at sex education curriculums in, in the schools, you know, they you know, if they talk about abstinence or they talk about sex even if they talk about pleasure, it's always disproportionately in the context of with someone else. <laughs> I'm all, I'm reminded of that segment. I think it's in Mean Girls, where they've got a sex education class where the teacher is just like, "If you have sex, you will die," or you know, <laughs> "If you do not use a condom, you will you will you die. will you will die." Um, Okay, I'm going to get in trouble from Brad, so we'd better wrap up. So what I'm going to finally ask you is what are you currently working on and where can people find you? I'm currently focusing on how to survive uh, the lockdown. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, finding this actually a re- I'm finding it's a very, very difficult time, a surprisingly difficult time for a lot yeah. of different reasons. Yeah. Um, we could have an entire episode focusing on that. But um, you can find me at uh, laurenrosewarn.com or that's also my Twitter handle. At the moment I'm doing some tentative research or, uh, for, for a project that's not quite um, refined enough yet to sort of tout. But uh, the most recent thing I wrote was an essay about uh, pandemic reunions and sort of content contacting your exes in this time of isolation, which uh, was recently published on Meandin, which is an Australian literary journal. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay, I will definitely be checking those things out. So thank you so, so much for joining us, Lauren, all the way from Melbourne. Um, to it's been speak. delightful. Thank you. I know. I think I could talk to you for quite a long time on a lot of things. Given our joint, you know, interests, but we'll have to leave it there. So I do. I wish you a bon weekend, and thank <laughs> thank you again for joining us. Au revoir. You too, Sarah. Thank you. Well, sadly, that brings us to the end of this week's Feminist Friday segment. So thank you again, Lauren, for joining us, and I'm going to leave you with a tune by Janet Jackson and Missy Elliott.
It's the P. Diddy remix of Son of a Gun, which was built around samples of Carly Simon's 1972 classic, You're So Vain, which just quietly is what I think of that Son of a Gun President Trump. So thank you for listening, Mezami, and be sure to tune in next week. Ha ha hoo hoo, thought you get the money too. Greeting, 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 try to have that cake you need it too. Let's go. This, yeah. This, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Remix. Set a right here. Bad boy, baby. Janet. Yeah. JJ. This goes out to all the clubs. There you find Film it. Let's bounce, y'all. Shop shooter into breaking hearts. Baby gigolo. Sex pistol. Hollering at everything that walks. No substance. Just small talk. But why you feeling all the guts behind? You gotta see me. One track mind, work in your pocket till you think you're fine. Who's going on with you tonight? I changed all the credit cards and switched the locks to all my doors. You thought my heart would be destroyed. Look around cause I'm chilling, boy. What you going get your lawyers for? I makes my dough and just one show, you know. Your lawyer should have let you know, you know. When you sue me, you gon' be you know. Ain't no way that you can bring me down easy. That your stick is real sleazy Before I need you, I bet you gon' need me You ain't want me anyway, you wanted to be me What made you think I keep you round? Well, I work my ass off and you just lounge, huh? Oh, you slump, bump, son of a gun And a, how about you work? I think next done. This is the remix oh, You're gonna give it to you You're gonna steal from you That's right, now like, oh, You're gonna lie to you You're gonna cheat up You're gonna talk about No, 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 
really think this song is about you. Don't you? Say it one more time.